Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hi everyone, my name is Leah and I'm a fourth year medical student at McGill University. I am joined today by my colleague Hansen, a first year family medicine resident, and our guest speaker, Dr. Abraham Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs is trained in medicine at McGill, specializing in internal medicine and clinical immunology, as well as a postdoc training at Harvard in the fields of immunogenetics and histocompatibility antigens. Not only is he a McGill grad and professor, Dr. Fuchs also served as Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at McGill from 1995 to 2006. Dr. Fuchs has done research and teaches about the language of medicine and its metaphoric structure, notably the impact of language on the physician-patient relationship. He has recently been named to the Order of Canada for his many contributions to the advancement of Canadian medical research, education, and scholarship. Dr. Fuchs, thank you for being on the show. Just to start off, can you tell us about your medical training, your career, and how you came to be interested in the language of medicine? Well, uh, that's an interesting story. <clears throat> I was interested in medicine as a career uh, very early on, even in high school, just quite a while ago, and uh, was fortunate uh, to get accepted to McGill. And I went to medical school there, and I had a wonderful time, and enjoyed the medical training, enjoyed the clinical work, and enjoyed the research. When I graduated, I had um, met some interesting uh, senior colleagues uh, who were working in immunology. And I got interested in immunology as a specialty because I'd met some clinicians at one hospital, I'd met some researchers at another, uh, and it seemed to me a very attractive field to both do clinical work and uh, to do uh, research as a combined career. So I trained in clinical immunology <clears throat> here in Montreal, uh, the, the VIC, and then the Montreal General Hospital, where I did my residency training. Um, I did internal medicine at the VIC, I did immunology to Montreal General, and then I decided it was time to pursue some research training. So I moved to uh, Boston for three years and worked at Harvard uh, doing laboratory work, no clinical work at the time. Uh, getting interested in histocompatibility antigens and the MHC, and interested in research aspects of immunology. Uh, that took three years of training, which I enjoyed immensely. And then I came back to Montreal from Boston and became a faculty member in the Department of Medicine. Uh, I did clinical work at the Montreal General Hospital in clinical immunology. And then uh, I had a research lab at the McGill Cancer Center working on the immunological aspects of uh, diabetes uh, and in a uh, rat model system with colleagues, and then also working on tumor markers, uh, carcinoembryonic antigen with uh, Phil Gold and his group. And that continued, and I enjoyed both aspects of the work, the clinical and the research and the teaching as well, which became more and more interesting. Uh, and I continued those two um, pathways uh, concurrently. 
And then in 1995, I had the opportunity to take on a senior administrative role in the Faculty of Medicine, and I was dean of the faculty from 1995 to 2006, and served for 11 years and enjoyed that enormously. <clears throat> At the end of that period, it was time for a change again, and I decided that rather than going back to clinical work, which I'd missed, but I'd stopped doing, and reopening a research lab, I uh, spent a sabbatical year uh, in Boston, again at Harvard and BU, looking at very different aspects of medicine, uh, medical anthropology, sociology, philosophy, uh, and uh, took a very different series of courses and seminars and came back and have been working since that time on some of the things that uh, I shared with the, the group uh, and that I'm interested in now, which is the language of medicine, doctor-patient relationships, uh, narrative structures. I've been working with two colleagues uh, in uh, Montreal, Don Boudreau, whom you may know, and a colleague in uh, Lausanne, who was here on sabbatical, Michael Saraga, a psychiatrist. And we've been working and doing some work and research on doctor-patient interaction. Clinicians at the bedside, what does it mean to be an excellent clinician? How does that work? And so I've been very fortunate in having an opportunity to work in very different domains, but all of them exciting, all of them interesting. Uh, I didn't know till looking back and reading more about Sir William Osler that uh, Osler said that you should switch career paths every 10 years. And so by happenstance, I ended up doing that uh, and, and had an opportunity to pursue many different pathways uh, right up to now when I continue to be interested in the language of medicine and what does that mean? What do words do in the doctor-patient relationship? Uh, why is language so important in the clinic and in clinical interactions? And so I've had an opportunity to work in all these different domains, and I'm very fortunate to have had the chance to do all that. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing your impressive journey. Those are super interesting career changes you've made, from being a clinical immunologist to dean of the faculty, then diving into the anthropology and philosophy of medicine. It makes me wonder... Was there any particular insight or experience during your time as a dean that led you to return to Boston with this curiosity for the humanities? It's a good question, Hanson. It, there are two parts to that answer. The answer is yes. Some of my experiences um, in, in that job, and in particular interacting with students, uh, I had the good fortune uh, to take the advice of a colleague to meet with second-year medical students on a kind of regular basis in a small group session in my office. Try to get a sense from them, how was that learning going, what did they find important? And by interacting with those students, and after they had some Diet Coke or coffee and began to trust the afternoon that we were, we were going to speak to each other candidly, the students started to talk about their experiences in the hospital and in the clinic. They started to talk about things 
they had seen, that they admired immensely, role models that were wonderful, and they started to share stories of things that didn't go so well. None of them had to do with um, a physician who couldn't use a stethoscope, of course, or a surgeon who couldn't operate. It had to do with lapses of interaction, of behavior, of relationships with patients, of um, activity that didn't seem to them, to the students, to make sense. And I realized that the students need a space to talk about these things. And that led uh, Dr. Boudreaux um, and other colleagues in the faculty, the Cruises of Alpha Mount and others, uh, to develop uh, and work on uh, Dr. Ann Wexler on the whole idea of physicianship. So the notion of physicianship as a construct came together there about what does it mean to be a physician? How do you interact with patients? What are the value systems? How do you as an individual student or, or, or senior faculty member interact with your colleagues and with patients? So that was one stimulus and that developed, as you know, into the Physician Apprenticeship Program, the Oster Fellowship, and that became a real mainstay of our, of our curriculum and our faculty and it was important and unique and it continues, as you both know, to the present day. That led later on to work be amongst myself, Don Boudreaux, and a wonderful senior colleague from the United States, Eric Cassell, and we wrote a book on um, the physicianship curriculum and with the modest title, The Rebirth of Medical Education. What does it mean to think about the relationships in the hospital and the clinic? And we conceived this idea of a triangle. At one point, at the top is the patient, and on one side is the student, the other side of the third apex of the triangle is the clinician, the teacher. And we said all these relationships are going on at the same time between the attending physician and the patient, that's a clinical relationship, between the student and the patient in the learning capacity, and both of them are learning, and between the teacher and the student and the other third arm of the triangle uh, that, that had to do with the pedagogical interaction. And we looked at and decided that there were parallels between the clinical relationship and the pedagogical. And all of them go on within language, right? Within verbal and nonverbal. The third strand, I said there were only two, but there's a third one that really motivated me to think about language in the first place. That was an article published in 1986 in the Perspectives in Biology and Medicine by William Donnelly about the language and the discourse of the hospital and the clinic. And I was really taken with that article. It talked about the words we use and the implications and the impact they have on ourselves and in our patients. So all those came together and I said, you know, I need to do some more learning about language and words and thinking and so that led me to the sabbatical in Boston, uh, taking seminars in anthropology and philosophy and social medicine, 
that helped me think through some of the work uh, that led to some of the work I'm doing today. It's quite amazing that an experience shared with medical learners who were expressing what they found good or bad about the physician's relationships eventually led you to asking so many questions and looking for answers in this sabbatical year and beyond. It seems you were really exploring in depth the importance of words in medicine throughout that time. With mindfulness becoming an important idea in medicine, if you were to describe a meaning to the word mindfulness, what would it be? It's an interesting and important question. There are many words that I call big words, big ideas, right? Mindfulness, empathy, patient-centered, empowerment, autonomy, patient decision-making, support systems. They're all very important. One of the reasons that they're so big as an idea is each of them means many things. The technical term is polysemic. Words are polysemic. They have many strands and many meanings. So when I listen to my colleagues, Tom Hutchison and others, talk about mindfulness, David Lieben and pediatrics, um, there are many wonderful ideas that they, and when I read the literature, the early editorial in 2008 in JAMA uh, by Kabat-Zinn and, and Lumberg. These are important ideas, and I see many things inside them. I read about, at one end, the notion that you and your colleagues are thinking about meditation, notion of Zen, the notion of awareness of a world, right? In some traditions, it's even the connectivity of different minds is a very big idea. I read about mindfulness as a modality of wellness and of self, uh, not so much protection, but self-knowledge, right? Uh, of, of maintaining health in times of stress and strain, which is part of what medicine and most professions are about. So I read about that part, which has to do with wellness and um, self-knowledge. I read about wonderful projects to work with patients to provide mindfulness training for them uh, to deal with their stresses of chronic illness in particular, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, and so on. I've read a wonderful paper recently about the mind, mindfulness, and the effect on the body. This is a beautiful, very simple study of colleagues who said, you know, patients with type 2 diabetes tend to know how their sugar, blood sugar fluctuates. And they know roughly how much time it takes for the blood sugar to drop a certain amount because they're used to the, the testing that they do frequently. They said, we're going to recruit type 2 diabetics, volunteers, and put them in three groups. Each group is going to do video games for 90 minutes. One group is going to have a clock that's the correct timing, and the clock goes at 90 minutes or 90 minutes. A second group has a clock that goes slowly. 
and the clock says 45 minutes has passed when 90 minutes have passed. And the third group has a clock that runs twice as fast as normal. So they think 90 minutes, they think 180 minutes have passed and it's only 90. So all three groups have spent 90 minutes. When they ask the group of 90 minutes roughly how long has it taken and they say 85 or 90 or something around 90, the group with the slow clock thinks that about 45 or 50 minutes have passed. The fast clock thinks that almost three hours have passed. Okay. Then they measure blood sugar. The people with 90 minutes, the drop in blood sugar is what you would expect that happens every day to them. The group that had the slow clock, thinking less time has passed, their blood sugar has gone down less and the group that's passed 180 minutes, even thinking they've passed 180, but they've only passed 90 minutes, their blood sugar has gone down more than the group of 90 or the group that thinks it's only 45. In other words, the mind believing, perceiving that more time has passed somehow influences blood sugar to drop more. I was quite amazed by this article. It said to me, no surprise to you, mind and body, right, the interaction. So I said, this is true. These are ideas in the mind that affect the body, no surprise. So my interest in this whole huge domain of mindfulness is one area. I'm interested what the mindfulness group, and I've heard Dr. Epstein talk about it and give a beautiful seminar at McGill about mindfulness, being aware of the surroundings, being aware of where you are in the phenomenological moment, right? The minute-to-minute -minute awareness. So I said, correct. My little territory that I'm keenly interested in is the awareness of a physician and the patient in a relationship called the doctor-patient relationship in the clinic. I appreciate that the physician can practice mindfulness for himself or herself, and the patient can do so. I'm interested in the interactive mindfulness, right? How, those, how do those two interact with each other? What does time do to their thinking? What does that the environment due to their thinking, and most important to me, I believe we live inside language. We communicate the language can be verbal, it can be nonverbal, but we live in language, we communicate with language. Our, our, our images, our expressions, you sometimes sit with a colleague or a friend who's telling you a story and you raise an eyebrow and the friend says, he doesn't believe me, right? It doesn't take much to communicate in that kind of relationship. So my interest is in that piece of mindfulness that is doctor-patient, in other words, of the whole universe of mindfulness, I'm interested as you are in the medical because it covers all fields, right, all human endeavors. And within that, I'm interested in mindfulness 
not for individuals by themselves, but individuals in a clinical relationship. And within that box, I'm interested in what language does to make a relationship mindful or not, engaged or not, interactive or not. And what do words do to make that happen or prevent that from happening? Hmm. We could definitely write an EVM blog about this. It's so interesting that the body has this internal hormonal and metabolic clock that reacts to the cognition's perception of time. If you want to know the article, it's in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, July 10th, 2016. I only saw it recently, although it was published several years ago. Volume 113, number 29. And maybe when the podcast goes out, I can send you the exact DOI so your colleagues can all look at the article. And it's so fascinating. It's in a very important journal. It has one illustration in it, one slide of the blood sugar levels. So it's a beautiful thing to read. I can imagine just that one slide being visually striking enough to make us realize our bodies are much more connected to our minds than we think. Oh, listen. As I will try and explain, and it's the following. When we say the body is connected to the mind, whoever disconnected them? They were never disconnected. So where's the mind? I guess it's somewhere in the body. Where's the body without the mind? Hello. So I do my best, as we all do, to avoid splitting, to avoid, what, do I, what am I cutting in half? The psyche, the body, the soma? No, it's all one. So I understand what you're saying. We use the language loosely since Descartes you know, the body and the mind, but they're never disconnected. And so this article talks about what goes on in the mind and blood sugar, and I'm interested in what goes on in words and our emotions, our reactions, our physical reactions, and I'm interested, therefore, in words and in one category of words even more, the placebo and the placebo effect, right? Because I call the placebo effect a pharmacology of words. Words are like drugs. They have benefits, they have toxic effects. And we as physicians need to learn how to use words in the same way that we learn to use digoxin. What's the right loading dose? How much do you give? As you well know, digoxin depends on the weight, right? The renal function depends on the patient's cardiac status, et cetera, et cetera. So if we think of word, using words carefully and understanding that the more potent the drug, in pharmacology we learn, 
the more potent the side effects. Words are the same. Words that have real power to heal, to help, may in other circumstances have a power to harm. And that's why we talk about placebo effects and nocebo effects. And so I'm interested in that piece of mindfulness that has to do with relational and has to do with language between doctors and patients. It's highly fascinating the potential words have. But I must admit at the same time, it's a little frightening to think that every single word I use in my patient relationship is going to have that much of an impact. So I'm wondering, how does a physician learn to choose the right word if there even is a choice being made? Is it more of a habit? Is it from our education? So it's a lovely question. So let me try and address it this way by analogy. You're a little frightened of words because they have power, right? And you and I and Leah as clinicians should we be frightened of digoxin, right? Because it can be toxic, for sure. Should a surgeon be frightened of a scalpel? Well, the internist is frightened of digoxin if he or she doesn't know how to use it. And I, who have not done anything with a scalpel for many, many years, am frightened of a scalpel because I no longer know with confidence how to use it. Words are no different. We're only frightened and scared by the power of words till we learn how to use them. Does that make sense? We have to learn. So instead of being using the word frightened, let's use the word we are not yet skilled at. And we need to become more skilled at using digoxin, using scalpels, and using words. And for me, the analogy is quite clear. I hope it is for you. So you asked the question, is it automatic? Well, would you trust a surgeon who says, I can automatically operate? No. Would you trust an internist who says, I never took pharmacology, but I'm going to give you this medication called digoxin? You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So we learn to respect the scalpel and we learn to respect the joxin by carefully using and seeing what happens, or by asking others, or by reading the guidelines, or by watching videos on surgical operations, right? I think the same is true of words. We sometimes take it for granted that we know how to use words, and we do, we're talking. But using words in the clinic with patients is not the same as what we're doing here. I mean, when you're using words with patients, you and the patient are not in the same position. You're more like a patient who's anesthetized and the surgeon is gonna operate the patient is vulnerable, so you, the clinician, have more responsibility for more learning, more using the words for mindfulness, more awareness. I'm aware that I can't do surgery today. That's good news. 
for both me and for patients. But it's a matter of learning by watching, by observing, by role modeling. Some of it is in books, some of it is in practice, some of it is watching. It's no different from any clinical skill. And if you, we learn to understand that words are good, they're wonderful because of their potency, but we're dealing with words with people who are vulnerable, they're called patients, we have a greater responsibility to, so to speak, watch what we say and how we say it. So we learn it through practice, we learn it with feedback, we learn it through physicianship, which is why I think, personally, it's as important to learn about the pharmacology of words as the pharmacology of drugs. Why do I say that? Every clinician uses words. Some also use digitalis, some use surgery, some use echo, but every clinician, medical student, senior clinician, we all use words. So you're right, it isn't simply a matter of intuition, but it does rest on what we've learned before medical school in our own experiences as young people growing up. We learn certain things from parents and family members and friends. We learn more from our colleagues at university, and then we learn even more by working with good clinicians. To use the example you mentioned, I learned a lot from the stories I heard from students, the ones you just talked about. And in, in the, my language elective that Leah participated in, um, in one year, I heard amazing stories from students. Some of them were wonderful about role models and other ones scared me because of the things they had seen. But I was heartened to know that the students, when they heard language that was wrong, behavior that was inappropriate, they knew it was wrong. Where does that come from? Growing up, living in a society, observing, watching, getting feedback. And also, you know, you learn the right from wrong. You learn the moral aspects of what it means to be a person and the additional moral duties of what it means to be a clinician. So the long answer to your question is, by reading, thinking, reflecting, being aware of, using your word, being mindful of. So it isn't just a question of how do I feel, which is one aspect of mindfulness, which is important, but when I've just used some words or a phrase, watching the patient's reaction, what does that mean? How does that work? So I'm interested in that piece, that relational, and how that um, behavior can lead to healing, can lead to wholeness, can lead to improvement, um, and, and is, to my mind, a crucial part of the physician's job. Even when you're bringing a painkiller to the bedside, 
and you're about to give a patient pain relief, how you say it, what you say, how it's administered, are all part of the package of giving a medication. And by the way, that's also evidence-based. There's a wonderful literature on placebos, how they work, obviously, in drugs and how they work, and a growing literature on words and how they work. I'll give you a small example that Leo may remember. Wonderful clinical work. Uh, if you say to a patient, is there anything else you would like to discuss this afternoon, the chances are high that they'll say, oh, no, that's enough, I'm, I'm okay. If you say, is there something else you would like to discuss the afternoon, in the majority of cases, they say, yes, thank you for asking. Here's another thing we forgot to discuss. It's a beautiful empirical study that the difference between anything and something is dramatic in getting a positive response or not. Now, did I know that? No. I didn't know that intuitively. I read about it in a paper. I said, wow, this is exciting. <clears throat> so I've shared it now with lots of medical students like Leah and others, and I hope they will learn too and remember uh, to not say, is there anything I can do to help you? You say, no. Is there something I can do to help you? And as you listen to yourself and watch the patient's response, the feedback is a learning experience, right? Watch the faces, watch the body language, watch patients relax when you sit back and say, I'm listening. Quite dramatic. It was, it was also something that we had discussed during our language and medicine class, but it was a point that I wanted, that I found important to emphasize. I do agree that a lot of our learning comes from seeing the, seeing the patient and learning how each different patient will react to different analogies and different words that we're going to use. They each connect to uh, or understand different metaphors that we're that we're going to use and i think a lot a lot of the importance of mindfulness in a physician and patient um, interaction is on our end is um, being aware of the reactions we're getting in this in the patient and do you believe that practicing mindfulness on a, on a daily basis can help us be more aware of that, that reaction and be able to use our language in a better way? I think that <clears throat> being, <clears throat> being aware and if, and if the mindfulness training helps make you more aware of your surroundings, yes, of course. But the one I would emphasize even more is not practicing on our own, but practicing with patients, standardized patients, or better even, real patients. So 100%, I would like to emphasize constantly that clinical practice is 
the exercise of awareness. Clinical practice means what's the reaction of the other to what I've just said? But listen, it's no different from saying some patients of different weight and different potassium levels require different levels of digoxin. We're not surprised. And some patients can have a laparoscopic procedure and others need an open procedure because of body size and complexities, whatever. So we're not surprised that we have to customize drugs and procedures, right? That doesn't shock anyone. How many milligrams per kilogram per day, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> Words are the same. The dose, the choice, is it by spoon, is it by injection, right? One of my colleagues once said that the most invasive specialty of all is psychiatry, because they inject words right into your brain. It can be good, it can be, can be toxic. So yes, Leah, I love the idea of <clears throat> practicing that, but in my frame, my preference is, is to practice that in the clinical context with patients and then, if possible, getting feedback, both from standardized patients and getting feedback from people watching us. We always need to get better. We always need coaching. Uh, we can get better by people watching us and observing us become better at what we do. The finest musicians, they can be world-class and they're 80 years old, Rastropovich playing the cello, he still had a, a coach, right? a teacher, who said, "How? who can teach him anything? Well, others can teach the very best how to be better. And in medicine, we have not really developed that tradition of coaching. Atul Gawande wrote a beautiful piece about that in The New Yorker, saying, why don't surgeons have coaches? Do you think they can do everything perfectly? The best tennis players in the world have coaches, right? You read about them. Why don't we have coaches? So I like this idea of practicing uh, and even ideally adding this dimension of colleagues who can watch us and see things we don't see. We sometimes are not aware of the fact that with certain patients we sit like this, you know, with our arms folded, and then someone says, why are you doing that? And say, I didn't realize it, right? So they say, think about that. And that's part of what you are talking about, awareness, mindfulness. Um, the, the very good psychiatrists tell us that they use the gauge of their reactions to help understand what's wrong with the patient, what troubles the patient. And the very good analysts and psychiatrists say, if you spent the entire afternoon with patients with severe depressions, you don't go home happy. You know, that feeling transmits somehow. And if you spent the whole afternoon with patients who were in a manic phase of bipolar illness, you go back with a very different feeling, maybe not happiness, but some kind of strange elation. They use their own reactions to help them understand what's ailing the patient. It's a beautiful example for me of how a sensitivity to the other is such an important index of clinical effectiveness.
And I'd like in that in that sense, I'm guessing this is how you tie it back to the interactive mindfulness that you were talking about. And I was also wondering um, about a word that you had mentioned earlier, one of those other big words, um, patient-centered. And I wanted to see how you integrate that into interactive mindfulness. Okay, so here is the reason I, I raised it. When you say patient-centered, I have to say, what do you mean? So you say, well, the object of our concern is the patient. So I said, so? How can it be any different? If I say, I'm practicing non-patient-centered medicine, what are you going to say? Hello, where do you work? It's a contradiction in terms. So I say, when you say patient-centered, what do you mean? So you say, well, I put the patient at the center of my medical universe. I said, that's good. And where are you, Dr. Sultana, Dr. Zhao? Are you in the center also? Oh, I don't know. So I ask you that. If the patient's in the center, are you on the sidelines? And you'll say, no, no, no. So I say, well, why then is the patient in the center alone? Is the patient in the center, like in a war movie, you're interrogating the patient? Of course not. Is the patient in the spotlight? Where were you on the night of the fifth? No. So I'm asking myself, what are, what are you telling me? I know you're saying to me, I care about the patient. I agree. So <clears throat> for me, my worry about putting the patient in the center <clears throat> is it allows you and me to walk away. Oh, the patient's still in the middle, don't worry. I say no. The relationship is in the center. The relationship is the focal point of the engagement. The problem with putting the patient in the center, like visually, is it looks like an arena with all the light shining down. What is the patient in a boxing ring? Is this a Roman form with gladiators? Of course not. What I want to put at the center of the clinical engagement is patient and physician together. They're in this jointly, and they have a joint duty. The duty, of course, is greater on the part of the physician, because this is not a relationship of equals. The patient is vulnerable, the patient is ill, the patient is harmed or hurt in some fashion. So what I like about patient-centered is to shift the word and use the term for me that's more valuable, relationship-centered. I want those two people to be co-responsable. I want them to be in there together. And I want the physician to know that it's his or her responsibility. It's the duty to be there. Since I'm on the subject of mild critiques, okay. Patient empowerment. So what is, one of our colleagues writes, patients are empowered. I say, what does that mean? Well, I let the patient choose, really. If you go see a lawyer and saying, I need your help because someone's accused me of slander or 
some terrible crime, you want the lawyer to just say, here are your choices, tell me what you want to do? Or do you want the lawyer to say, here are the things that are available, here are my opinions, now let's discuss them. But the first thing I want the lawyer to say is, what's hurting? What's bothering you? What's the most important to you? Is it the family in case you're found guilty of some crime? Is it the fact that you're going to lose money if you're fined? Is it the fact that you might go to prison and lose your career? What hurts the most, right? So my worry about patient empowerment is it says, okay, medicine is like a big menu in the restaurant. Pick one, four, and six. It's your choice, buddy. Of course, patients have to be engaged in making decisions and making choices. But I worry a lot that when you say it's patient decision-making, patient-directed, it gives the clinician an opportunity to say, it's not my problem, it's yours. Now, it sounds a little exaggerated, but when you think of the world of, of medically unexplained symptoms, and, and patients have arrays of symptoms that no one can figure out. The clinician sometimes says, I don't know what's going on with you, or we don't know what's wrong, meaning it's your problem, buddy. Okay? The other one I've read about is they say, okay, it's a team, we're all responsible. My dilemma with a team that's all responsible is a phenomenon I've read about called the collusion of anonymity. The whole team is responsible, which means no single person is really responsible. Oh, oh I'm not on call tonight. It's Leah's problem. Oh, no, no, she signed out to Hanson. He should do, do it. And all of a sudden, there's three of us. We're all going somewhere else. And the patient, where's the patient? Empowered and centered. I say hello, and I don't want to sound too critical, but it's called abandonment, right? So that's my concern. I have no problem with saying the patient is at the center of what our concerns are, but I like to see a picture of two of us, the patient and one of us, the clinician, in there with the responsibility. One thing that I had noticed and, and thought of with the term interactive mindfulness is there is some awareness that comes on the physician's part, but there is also some awareness that needs to come on the, on the patient's part as well. And I was wondering, one thing that you had mentioned is that the knowledge of what it is, acknowledging what it is that bothers them most and what it is they would appreciate most as help, is that some... The, the, the reflection of their mindfulness in that relationship? Right. So let me, let me try and, and open up the, the word idea of reflection, right? When I, I, I don't like the word self-reflection because it's a funny word. I mean, you're reflecting with yourself, so what's the difference between reflection and self-reflection? Okay. I love the idea of reflection, and in the clinical sense, I love the idea of reflective engagement and, and you mentioned the question of the psychoanalytic notion of motivating answers, and that's not what I had in mind. What I have in mind is, let's think about this together. 
let's reflect jointly. And the first and most important step is the clinician is there and by her behavior shows, I'm here, I have time for you, I'm sitting down and I care. It's called presence, being there. And then you say to the patient, tell me more. Tell me about yourself. You asked for a little bio of myself when we started to know who am I? How come we don't ask that of every patient? Who are you? Tell me more about who you are. Not what bothers you, not why you're here, but who are you? Tell me more. So what I like about this notion of, 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 of reflection is we figure out together what matters to you the most. What might matter to me is the fact that when you came in and we took your blood pressure, it was very high. The patient doesn't know he or she has high blood pressure. They came for something else. That doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to measure their blood pressure and look after it. But you have to say, why are they that person? Why is he or she here? And we're dealing with that individual. I read a beautiful analogy recently by a physicist who said, you know, who became a family physician. Physicists are worried about groups of electrons. They're worried about the average electron, the electron cloud. As long as the electron cloud follows some law, Newton's, quantum, whatever, they're happy. Physicians don't deal with clouds of electrons. They deal with one electron. How are you, Mr. and Ms. Electron? Where have you been recently? What quantum jump did you come from? How are you? What makes who you are? What charge do you carry? How many bosons? Whatever. They deal with the individual, and that's why the individual has a story. Clouds of electrons don't have stories, they have averages. Individual electrons have narratives, and as our colleague Rita Sharon has taught us all, we need to know the narrative. So my first question to the patient is, besides who are you, tell me your story. Because I don't yet know what it is I need to do for you. I don't yet know what I need, how to help you, and as Hansen said, how do you know what words to use? And at that point, I don't know. Because I can't choose the right words, even if I have the skill of choosing, till I know what words you use. If I don't listen to your heart and realize you're in cardiac failure, how do I know I need digoxin? I need to ask questions. So for me, reflection has to do with this interaction of what matters the most for you? And then I say to the patient, here's what matters in part to me. I've listened to your lungs. Sounds like you have fluids. Are you short of breath? Tell me more. So we arrive together at a story. You see, we say we take the history as if the patient gives it to us and we run away. We don't take histories. We construct the story of the illness with the patient. As someone wrote recently, historians don't just describe history, they create it, they write it. 
historians tell the story as they understand it. Doctors shape the patient's story by the questions you ask, by the things you emphasize. We have to be careful to respect the stories, to receive it. And so my point about reflective engagement has to do with this interactive piece. And before we finish, I'd love to read for you a short paragraph that might help explain from a novel what, to me, reflection and engagement is all about. And if that's okay, just tell me when, and I'll, it's very short, it takes two minutes to read. It might help open some more points of discussion, if that's okay. I would be very interested in listening to this right now, if that's a possibility. Sure. So, I'm going to read it. This is from a novel by a woman called Elizabeth Strout, and the title is called Olive Again. It's about a woman, Olive, a retired teacher, now elderly, living in Maine. And she had had a heart attack, uh, was in a hospital, and overnight, one night, had a horrific bout of diarrhea and, and soiled the bed and you know, was really embarrassed about all this, was mortified. It's a very elderly, proud woman. So that's the background. But here's the story as it's written as the next morning. When Dr. Rebelinsky showed up the next morning, Olive waited to see if he had heard of her horror. And when he did not mention it, she finally said, my bowels move with a frightful ferocity. She made herself look at him when she said that. He said, it's the antibiotics, and gave a small shrug. So she relaxed a tiny bit and asked when she could go home. And he said, any day now. He sat on the bed after that without saying anything and Olive gazed out the window. For a few moments, she felt something close to bliss. But it was more as though time had stopped. Just for these few moments, time had stopped. And there was only the doctor and life. And it sat with her in the morning sunshine that fell over the bed. She put her hand on his briefly, and still looking out the window, she said quietly, thank you. And he said quietly, you're welcome. So here you have a small vignette of a relationship, of an interaction. And the nuances of the language are magnificent. She's embarrassed, and he's careful, he says nothing. But he can't completely ignore it because it's important to her, so she brings it up. And then the author says, she made herself look at him. And why is that? She was ashamed. But she says, I'm proud, I'm gonna be honest. And he said, don't worry. And he didn't say, don't worry. He said, oh, it's the antibiotics. In other words, it's not your fault. Nothing to be ashamed of. 
he was effectively saying, by making a small shrug, it's nothing. And then she relaxed. And then they went on to this interaction, and then he sat down on the bed. In other words, I'm not staying away from you because you soiled your bedclothes last night. You're a human being. You're fine. You're good. You're who you are. You're all of He sat down with him. And this presence, this being there with her in a way that made no demands, that said, you're fine, you're going to go home soon, gave her a sense of bliss. That's a strong word, bliss. Someone is sick in the hospital. It's a beautiful sense of what he transmitted to her. And then she felt comfortable enough to put her hand over his. In other words, she wanted that human connection. She wanted that contact. And what does she say beautifully? Thank you. And he says, you're welcome. He didn't say, oh, it's nothing. It's just my job. No. He connected with her as a person. You know, it was a kind of re reflection in the moment. And if you ever want a model description in one paragraph of two people being aware and mindful of each other, there it is. It's beautiful. I really love in this interaction how he let her bring up, he gave her the liberty of bringing up or not what it was that was bothering her and I think it it did end up opening a door for her that she felt more comfortable going through and both twice because he let her bring up um, the fact that uh, that she had to oil the bed but he also let her uh, make her advance with a thank you in the end and open that up to her so I feel like there's there was an opening in both language and also uh, in in um, verbal language but also in body language 100% yeah and only and you see that's why I love narratives because a clinical chart could never tell us what we learned from that story never it's not there the, 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 the spirit of the patient, the perfume isn't there. The bouquet, right? It's in those stories and novelists can bring that to our attention. Novelists can shape our vision. So when Hansen said, where do you learn these words? You can also learn them from reading and kind of experiencing at a distance what this novelist saw. Um, and, and those are amazingly beautiful stories. And they're stories, as you know, written by patients. They're stories written by the most, some of the most powerful are stories written by physicians who became patients and became ill. And they were forever reshaped by that experience. So you're right. It is a beautiful example of that kind of comfort with each other that's stunning the stunning right that she's in her 80s and quite ill and he's there coming in to see her at the nursing home in the morning or at the hospital <clears throat> so 
it, it illustrates what I'm talking about. It illustrates the presence which says, I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm here to help. And I'm here to help by knowing what you need most from me. I don't presume to know. He let her direct the discussion, as you pointed out. She told the story. She then changed subjects by saying, when am I going home? He then sat down, didn't say anything. She reached out and said, thank you. He let her take the lead in this clinical engagement. Uh, my colleagues and I did some work with clinicians, and one of them described this beautiful idea by saying they feel most like a physician when they're in a bubble with the patient. He called it the magic bubble. We're in this together. I have him or her, they have me, and we're in this together. And no one else right now counts, just the two of us. That's why I love the relationship center as a counter position to the patient-centered, right? Uh, it's that shift of ideas, that shift of framing that, that attracts me to that. So in this, in this um, interaction, we can see as well that mindfulness sort of led to the appropriate language, either verbal or body language that, were that was used in the presence of the patient, and which led to an awareness of this relationship between a physician and a patient and we can see that it sort of builds on each other and inter interconnects very very tightly and so my question to you is in the end for you what is the relation of language and mindfulness well uh, let me just uh, i'll comment on that in a second when you say <clears throat> Mindfulness gives us awareness. Um, when I focus on it a little more, because as I said, mindfulness is such a big idea, it's easier for me to think of you know, clinical presence, and a JAMA editorial once described it as, what's presence, physician presence? Awareness, focus, and attention with the intent to understand and connect with patients. Listen intently, agree on what matters most, jointly agree, connect with the patient's story, and explore emotional cues. So that array of adjectives helps me more than just to use the one word mindfulness, right? It, it opens the idea in a way that I can explore it, and I say to myself, yes, you can be mindful by practicing meditation, by practicing other kinds of Zen techniques and breathing, and that's, that's there, it's beautiful. What I'm interested in focusing on is a particular set that I like to describe by clinician presence, and in the patient, presence in the patient, with an intent to connect. It isn't just an awareness of the other. You can be aware of people in a classroom but you don't have the duty to connect with them, right? When you're in the presence of patients, 
you're not just aware of, of them. You have to be aware of who they are, what they need, and how you are there, what it is you and I have a duty to do to help them. Part one. Part two, you say, okay, what's the relationship between mindfulness and language? Well, to me, how do you split them? How can, we, how can I reflect <clears throat> my ideas without using words <clears throat> and ideas that swirl in your head? Now, some of you may say, look, there are Zen Buddhist monks who have practiced meditation for many years who have achieved a state of emptiness, right? And I, I don't know what goes on in their minds. I know you, people have done EEG studies and so on, and things are certainly going on. And maybe they've achieved a means of thinking without words. But I can't, right? So for me, I need to, when I'm aware of, I'm describing. I'm not necessarily articulating the words, but in my mind, the words are swirling around. So mindfulness and language to me is almost inseparable. And especially when it's relational, then I have no, what, let me call it for want of a better term, clinical mindfulness does not exist for me without words and language. And as you, I agree with you, verbal or nonverbal. A smile, a shake of the head. Those are important. And those happening in the presence of clinician and physician, physician and patient, is clinical medicine. And in that sense, a lot of, so a lot of clinical practice and, and maybe perhaps a, a majority of our clinical practice is based in this, um, in this uh, language and in this awareness and in the, and in the, the, the physician and patient relationship that we have. And it's to me it seems um special that we spend on the contrary so much of our curriculum spent on learning um pathophysiology and and uh we do have so we do have mind we do learn about mindful medical practice right now which is amazing and a great learning opportunity and i was wondering is there uh, is it is there another way to view medicine that would lead us towards a better understanding of the 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 really the human aspect of medicine? So here's the big secret. Every time that you do clinical work, from following a patient in first year, right? In LFME, all your all your you know training leading up to clerkship and all your clerkships. Guess what? 
It all deals with humans. All of it. And all of it requires awareness, and all of it requires words and language. So as soon as we agree on that, I can say to you, you have a year and a half of what you talked about, pathophysiology, and none of us would say it's irrelevant, right? What are you going to offer patients when you can be a great listener, but you have to then tell them, give them value. You have to give them your expertise. You have to give them, you, you, you see, they are looking, patients are actually looking for expertise. They're looking for reassurance. They're looking for hope. They want to get better. Why not? <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. So, I can claim that we do a year and a half, and necessarily and appropriately, and intensely, pathophysiology, pathology, and so on. And then we do two and a half years of guess what? Language, awareness, mindfulness. So mindfulness doesn't just exist in the course that Dr. Hutchison and Levin and, and Patricia Dopkin provide. That's there to raise your sensitivity, to give you the training Hanson talked about. But if you don't practice it every day, hey, you know, if you don't use your pharmacology every day, psh, uh, eventually, if you don't remember the Krebs cycle, you don't understand diabetes. You're using it all the time. So, and that's when I try and teach, you know, language. I do two lectures in second year, one of them this coming Thursday, and we do the electives. I know full well that I would love to give more. But my job there is to plant little seeds in the psyche, in the brain somewhere, in the mind, that says, next time you listen to a patient, remember what we talked about. It's your mode of practice. You don't learn how to use a stethoscope just by listening to the Harvey the dummy with a tape recorder. You use it on the wards, I hope you still do. You use it on the wards, you practice with that. Words are the same. And what you're saying, do we need more mindfulness? And I say yes every day. Every day. You, you can't split clinical practice from mindfulness. So that's why I say, maybe a little provocatively, that yes, we need the basic sciences, we need the natural sciences, 100%. We love, we need research, and if we don't know about genes and how we check mutations and how do we know to give the right drug, right? Look at, look at the, the array of treatments for breast cancer based on very hardcore and important evidence-based data. Done. But when you're there explaining to a woman and her family who's about to make some decisions about surgery, that requires the individual, the words, the single electron, right? The, the, the customized, I'm here for you and your family. That to me is the mindset of stories, text, analyses, understanding individuals, and I call that the humanities, right? Dealing with 
the content and expertise of the human sciences. And the reason I worry about this is I don't like splitting the two, right? I don't like splitting mind from body. I don't like splitting pathophysiology from awareness. But I realized that we have to split them to understand them, to talk about them like we've been doing tonight. At the end of the day, with enough time and practice, they become, as Hansen said earlier, intuitive. Not because you were born with them, it's because you practice enough. They become like muscle memory for the mind, right? The mind, too, has the muscles of thinking, the gyri and the salsi and the neurons and the network. They become, as we say, second nature. That takes time, that takes practice. Um, just like a surgeon, having done a procedure many times, you know, gets a certain muscle memory or an athlete. The same thing is true with words. Um, you, you develop patterns and mindsets. So you're right, but remember, every day you go into the hospital, whether you're listening to a case report or one of your colleagues presenting a case, you're listening to a story of a patient, and when you're in there in the room with the patient, you are in a, if you want to use the term, a mindfulness experiment every day. <laughs> I have to say, I hadn't really thought about it like that. I hadn't ever seen it as we're doing 1.5 years of, you know, learning a lot of pathophysiology, physiology, all of that, and then two and a half years, and not only two and a half years, because we're going on for the rest of our lives. Amen. To, to, <laughs> to learn like that um and just to tie everything together if you had one last message or pearl to end the podcast on for our medical learners what would you tell them i would tell them to first of all enjoy what they do enjoy the privilege we've been given ask clinicians um, and the privilege of being with people and the privilege of engaging deeply with people in ways that few professions offer. There's something awe-inspiring about that privilege. So message one is enjoy it. Message two is respect the privilege we've been given. Message three is learn, and it takes practice also, learn to be humble about it. Learn to remember that you're not always right. And if you're always right, you'll never learn. Remember that often and most often the patient is right. The patient knows what he or she needs and what's bothering. And the fourth message is, and you can't do it unless you're humble, is to listen. Our society, all of us speak too much. We need to listen more, we need to speak less. A wonderful educator once said that learning is speaking, teaching is listening. The same thing is true with patients. When you're a listener, 
you permit, you motivate, you cause the patient to speak. And there's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor I learned from a wonderful philosopher who wrote that listening is mayutic. Mayutic is a word that comes from the same source as midwife, midwifery, slash fam. The listener, by listening, gives birth to the words of the speaker. It's very simple. If the two of you had not invited me with Patrick to do the session, would I be speaking to anyone tonight? No. You allowed me to speak by listening to me, and I hope I, by listening to you, hear your questions and respond to them. So the fourth of my messages is the power of listening to me is a cardinal virtue in medicine. Thank you for those beautiful words and beautiful messages. And I think I speak for Hansen and I when I say that we had the privilege of listening to you today. And I wanted to ask for all of us who are interested in following your work, um, how do you recommend that we do that? Well, first of all, my first recommendation is listen to each other, right? Uh, we all have something to share. We can only share it if people are receptive. Listen to your patients and give them the respect that they deserve. More concretely, I, I'm happy to share, if you want to add to the podcast site, a piece I wrote a long time ago about the military metaphors of medicine. I'm happy to share the paper that I was privileged to write using the stories of some of your colleagues, students who shared their stories with me, which is an amazing privilege for me as I listened and was really taken by the stories they told so beautifully. And then, Deo Valente, as they say, I'm working on a book uh, called The Language of Medicine. And if all goes well, it'll be available by the end of 2021. And I'll be happy to share that with you guys when it comes out, if you're interested in following some of these ideas and concepts. That's amazing. So I think in the we'll provide the links to all of those resources on in our podcast, and it would be great. I'm very happy to hear that you're working on a book, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on uh, on discussing this really important topic to us all. Yes. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, Dr. Fuchs. Thank you for the opportunity, both of you, and give my regards to Patrick as well. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or send us a message through the contact page on the mindfulmedicallearner.com.